Hi, I'm Lauren Berlingeri, co-founder and co-CEO of Higher Dose, and I'm here today with Jay Godfrey, who's the founder of New Shama, and we're going to talk all things ketamine therapy, which I'm super excited and very fascinated about. Personally had my own ketamine experience, which transformed my life, so I'm actually really interested today to find out how it transformed yours. Wow. Um, how much time you got? <laughs> yeah. Have you done an infrared sauna before? So I've never done an infrared sauna before, so tell me. It is different than traditional saunas. Traditional saunas heat the air, whereas infrared's a light therapy that heats your core body temperature, warms you at a much lower temperature, and vibrates water molecules and pulls toxins out of your fat cells. So it's kind of funny that we're talking about psychedelics and ketamine and all of that, because what I used to read is that infrared can detox you of drugs too as well. So sometimes people that really need to detox can feel a little psychedelic-y. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You get to like double dose can or I double dip. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. How about that? Sure. You know, I'll zoom out as, as far as I can. Uh, around 2015, I was not feeling good. Something happened to me in my fashion business that I don't really need to go into, but it really made me feel, you know, like a failure... Uh, tons of self-blame, uh, and lots of stories in my head. And your and fashion business was designing... Women's dresses. Women's dresses. Um, and we had like a contemporary collection that we sold to the fancy department. And stores. how long did you do this for? 15 years. Wow. And... And you still felt like a failure. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds it in sounds retrospect. It sounds very New York of you. It's you so know, New York. It's never enough. And... I started going to a therapist and even that for me was such a leap of faith because nobody in my, we were, nobody, nobody talked about therapy in the Godfrey family and mm. people threatened therapy. Really? <laughs> it was a, kind of like this old model where if you're misbehaving, I'm going to send you to a therapist. Oh. And it was just a kind of a, a different way of looking at the world. So when I, when I started going to a therapist, I did it very incognito thinking this was so gauche of Got me. It. Did someone suggest it to you? Or? Yeah, I, I was speaking to a few friends of mine and they were like, you should really speak to somebody. And <laughs> I so, can't help you here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're a mess. Yeah. Go speak to somebody. And so I started seeing this therapist for about three years, once a week, every single week. I picked up a meditation practice as well uh, through Transcendental Meditation. Mm -hmm. And life was improving but after three years, 156 weeks, every single week. Multiple dollars. I'm $350 every week. So uh -oh. I think I did the math once. It was like north of $50,000 I had spent on therapy. Yeah. And it wasn't that my therapist wasn't good. My therapist was an excellent therapist. Mm -hmm. The issue came down to my ego was so entrenched. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't even know what that meant mm -hmm. at the time. I thought ego was like the dude driving along the street with his Ferrari. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can get into ego in a, in a little bit. But I was so entrenched and I'd never tried any drugs in my life. I think I smoked pot in college four times and that was the extent of my... That's kind of crazy to live in New York City in the fashion <laughs> business and never try drugs before. I know. I'm I saw impressed. a lot. Of, I saw a lot of it, but I never... I never partook. It just never interested me. And frankly, I was afraid. If, mm. if anything, I was really... To lose control. Not even about losing control, but the dangers of it all. Mm. That oh, was because I grew smart. up in the, you know, during the era of the drug war. I never, don't just say no. And so I never did any drugs. And uh, I remember reading a book by Dave Asprey, actually, called Game Changers. Mm -hmm. 
you know, there was a chapter on adaptogenic mushrooms, functional mushrooms, and all these different kind of biohacks that he was interested in and that he was testing. Mm. And one of them, there was like this tiny little mention of psychedelics. This was years ago. Yeah. That led me to Michael Pollan's book, yes. How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. And I'd come to the conclusion that this was for sure the future of how people with mood disorders, be it depression, anxiety, addiction, uh, PTSD, OCD, eating disorders. I was convinced this was how you treat people with these issues, but I wasn't convinced it was for me. Right. I said to myself, well... Because you didn't have any of those disorders, or at least you didn't think I you did. I think I qualified as having generalized anxiety disorder, which 100% of New Yorkers have. Yeah. After reading the book, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do this. This is this is for people who like drugs still at that point. Mm. Finally, an acquaintance of mine who I respected a lot said to me, he's like, listen, you should... You should give this a try. And uh, I was lucky enough. Which was mushrooms at the time? or? Well, actually, my very first journey was with both plants and mushrooms. There was a plant called sassafras. Mm, which like is natural MDMA, right? Pretty much. It's, it's, in, it's MDA, which is they call uh, Sally on the street, or sassafras, or sass, um, as a heart opener. Mm-hmm. And it got boosted with psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Which is more of a mind opener? Well, it varies for everybody. I mean, I look at psilocybin personally as more of like something that ignites the spirit and sassafras or MDA or MDMA, any of those heart openers as something that really allows an opening into your heart space. Mm. And people like me who tried this for the very first time at 39 years old, I didn't recognize that for about 30 plus years, my heart was completely closed. Oh, wow. I did it outdoors looking up at the stars. And I remember saying to myself, nothing will ever be the same. There's a cliche in the psychedelic world, which is true. It's like five years of therapy in five hours. Mm-hmm. And I was able to work... Because you become the therapist, I feel like, in psychedelics. Is that the difference? Someone telling you versus you doing the work yourself? Yeah, in many ways. It's about igniting that healer within. Shamanism, mm. which is the foundation of all this psychedelic work, is all about accessing that internal healer. Mm -hmm. And it's not about actually the sassafras or the psilocybin or ketamine or LSD or DMT or any of the other psychedelics. It's really about what they do as facilitator molecules. Mm -hmm. They open you up. They allow you to see. And really the real work comes when you decide, okay, I've learned something today in my Mm -hmm. experience. How am I going to integrate that into my life? Yeah. And that I'm capable, right? Because I feel like a lot of the times we always feel like it's not possible for us. We can't be happy. I can't live without fear. It's just how I'm programmed or hardwired. It's in my genetics. I grew up that way. But I feel like psychedelics really show you what's possible. And that in itself just gives hope for so many people and how powerful that is. And then the facilitator, the teacher, integration, all of that kind of comes in to really do the rewiring. Indeed. I mean, you know, one of the things that at Nshama we talk about and what I was taught, which is between the ages of zero and seven or eight, and this is a Freudian concept, something happens. Mm. We call it a trauma. Mm-hmm. I like to use the word wounds because trauma people think is, you know, it has to be rape or it has to be you witnessing a murder or it has to be you, you were abused physically, emotionally, sexually, whatever it is. And those for sure are traumas and, and many people uh, have had to deal with them. So I call that capital T trauma. Mm-hmm. Then there's lowercase t trauma, mm. which 
many people have, which mm -hmm. is somebody in the fifth grade told you they didn't like your hair mm. or that you were too tall or too short or too skinny or too yeah. fat or too rich or too poor, whatever it was, it fundamentally leaves you with this idea that I am not good enough. Right. And not good enough is the bedrock, in my opinion, of every single mood disorder, mm -hmm. whether it be alcohol use disorder, opiate use disorder, depression, anxiety, PTSD, you name it. Because they're numbers to not feel? Why is it? Like, why do we go towards you, those addictions? You start to look through the lens that I'm not good enough, I am hopeless and I am not worthy and all these I'm not deserving, and you start to see it as you. Mm. And it is not you, because underneath it all, we weren't born jealous, angry, competitive, sarcastic. These are learned behaviors. Mm. So depression and anxiety are also learned behaviors. So what these psychedelic molecules do, I think quite effectively, is they quiet the area of your brain known as the ego, mm -hmm. the default mode network, and they allow you to see. Mm -hmm. And when you see beyond the ego, without the judgments, the opinions, the biases, it really allows you to see the core of who you are. Mm -hmm. So I've had experiences where I've walked out and my takeaway is I'm actually worthy. I've been telling myself a story for 40 years that I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. Walking out of it with that type of empowerment, which sounds so simple, but there's no intellectual framework mm. that you can say to yourself, I am worthy. Right. You can say it to yourself a thousand times, yeah. but unless you feel it in your heart, feel it in your body, that is the only way you'll be able to, to transcend that lack of worthiness. Got it. That's so interesting. But why do you think that so many people turn to alcohol and substance abuse? Do you think it is a numbing of emotions? Do you think it's, I'm not worthy, so I subconsciously think this. I'm not worthy, so I'm not going to do anything good for myself. And like, I kind of feel like the opposite of that is somewhat like taking care of yourself and health and wellness and, and fitness. And I am worthy, like self-love, which has also made an explosion in the last five years. I feel like that's kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum of this self-sabotage behavior. Oh, it certainly is. I mean, when you reach for a drink or a joint or whatever it is that you're doing to numb, it's exactly that. You're doing it as an escape. That's why many people who come to us naturally you know, stop drinking, stop smoking pot, mm -hmm. stop engaging in destructive behaviors. But I or think at least in copious amounts, like having, yeah. you know, a drink here or there is not as big of a deal as coming home every day and having a 12 pack of beer That's or right. something like that. That's yeah. right. The people become more mindful and intentional and aware of the, what's going on in their lives. Yeah. You know, as it relates to mood disorders in general, whether it be depression, anxiety, PTSD, uh, or addiction, I look at them as all addictions. Yeah. You know, if you're anxious, you're addicted to worrying about the future. Yeah. If you're depressed, you're addicted to worrying about what happened. Yeah. If you've got obsessive compulsive, you often are addicted to whether it's cleanliness or control. Um, obviously, alcohol and opiates speak for itself mm -hmm. what you're addicted to. So they're all different addictions and they're all ways of putting walls around you. Yeah. And from preventing, you know, kind of this highest self as they talk about in Hindu scripture or the light as they talk about in Kabbalah from appearing. Do you think that's why, and this is, might be a fully loaded question, but the government and society make psychedelics feel like it's so bad, but yet you can buy alcohol and tobacco and all of these, like, you know, even TV that could be so addicting and, like, social media is, like, so widely available, but yet psychedelics is still, like, bad and there's this, like, stigma around it. Do you think it's because they want people to 
not see the light and not fully be happy? Like, why you know, doesn't everyone know about this? Like, why are we well, starting, starting right here? To, they're starting to know about it, which is good. When the drug war really started kind of in the early 1970s under the, the Nixon administration, um, they just looked at drugs, whether it be crack or cocaine or methamphetamine, as the same thing mm-hmm. as psychedelics like yeah. LSD and yeah. mushrooms. They put them in the same category. Right, and it's like putting baseball and cooking in the same thing. They're right. non-related. Mm-hmm. They're, it's, it's, there's, they have nothing to do with each other. They have completely different harm profiles, completely different addiction profiles. So Because psychedelics are not addictive? They are not addictive. In fact, we use ketamine to treat alcohol use disorder. Right. We use ketamine to treat opiate use disorder. Addiction. Addictions in general. Psychedelics are not addictive. They, they fight addiction. Certain psychedelics, like Ibogaine, people don't want to do twice no. because they're so brutal. It's not always the easiest experience for people, right? It's hard work. And okay. people don't realize that. It's not like you're running through a field with like rainbows and butterflies. Like you got to go back to that trauma, relive it, experience it in your body, and then like process it and be like, okay, what am I going to do now to like not suffer from this anymore? And that's really hard work. It's really hard work. And there's this idea within the psychedelic ecosystem, regardless of the psychedelic that's been used, which is most of these other drugs like cocaine and meth, they're meant to escape. Mm. They're meant to get you as far away from yourself and whatever situation you're dealing with as possible. On the other hand, psychedelics do the opposite. Mm -hmm. They bring Bring you in touch Mm -hmm. with who you are. They bring you in touch with what has happened. Right. Especially with some of the more heart-opening type psychedelics like MDMA and and, and MDA, you really start to get your heart so opened Mm -hmm. that it becomes apparent so quickly to you what happened. Why at Nushama did you settle on ketamine? First, I didn't know anything about ketamine, admittedly, prior to to starting Nushama. But you did try ketamine before starting Nushama. Indeed, indeed. Um, I was in a in a psilocybin journey in about June 2020 during COVID. And I was looking, what was so strange was that my fashion business was cratering at the time. So my name was on the door Mm. and it was cratering. And I looked around and I saw people double and triple and quadruple masked and wearing gloves and staying at home and living in fear. And this was June 2020, and I was pretty chill about it. Mm. And I was so chill because about it. Because of your psychedelic experience. Because of my psychedelic experience, because okay. I recognized that there was just so much more out there than what we were living in in the moment. So I wasn't living in fear. I was, but you could also recognize that maybe you need to pivot and do something else with your talents. Well, so in June 2020, I had this whole experience where it was the one time I've had, had, I did zero inner work. My mind was racing that I thought that somehow it was unfair that I got chosen to do this work, Mm. somehow. And in the experience, I really said to myself, there really needs to be a way in the American medical context to bring this to people suffering. And there's plenty of drug development companies like Compass Pathways and MindMed and the Thai Life Sciences and the list goes on and on and they're doing amazing work. Mm. I've got so much respect for them that they're developing new forms of psilocybin and LSD and all these other molecules. And that's great for five, ten years down the road. Yeah. The problem is the issue is in the here and now. So that very same month that I did that journey where I said there needs to be a legal context for this, 11% of Americans in June 2020 contemplated suicide. And it's because of the isolation at home, and mm-hmm. it's because of the you fear, know, 
we're yeah. all gonna die. Yeah, world's so what, coming to an end. And exactly. Mm -hmm. So Jay, what's the science that backs ketamine therapy? So there's two things that happen during any psychedelic experience, but since we're talking specifically about ketamine today, we'll we'll focus on that. There's a physiological response, and then there's a psycho-spiritual one. The physiological response is that when you take a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine or a psychedelic dose, and you go through a process called ego dissolution, there is imaging to prove that areas of your brain that either haven't communicated with each other or haven't communicated with each other within a very, very long time, you know, perhaps since your childhood or since a specific trauma, they're reconnecting. Jeez. So there's something called neuroplasticity, synaptogenesis. These are things that, that are verifiable using fMRI machines, and you can see the new connections that get created from Wait, ketamine. but this seems like an all-around just, like, healthy thing to do, right? Because if you don't use it, you're going to lose it kind of thing. And, like, does it help with things like Alzheimer's, dementia, any sort of, like kind of inflammation or gray matter on the brain that, a, you know, is not healthy? That's a great question. So psychedelics in general, uh, Johns Hopkins is currently doing studies on psilocybin specifically or the activating uh, molecule in magic mushrooms to look at how it affects Alzheimer's. Mm. They're at very, very early stage. Uh, what we will say anecdotally that Nushama and within practice is we can totally see why this works. Simply because of the neuroplastic effect of the brain. Got it. So that is the verifiable science. There's another aspect to this, which is why I'm here. This isn't about just giving a medicine to somebody mm -hmm. and having it do its work on a right. brain. There are some physicians that believe that. Yeah, because some ketamine clinics, you could just do ketamine and watch Netflix, right? That's right. With us, it's a whole hospitality experience where there's intention setting, you know, you're putting an eye mask on, specific music, you're going in zero gravity chair, you know, you're offered snacks after, mm -hmm. and it feels like you're going to a really, really do nice Do you spot. go into the room during session with somebody or are you by yourself? You can do either. either. You can have a hand holder or not a hand holder, it just depends on preference. The psycho-spiritual component of uh, any psychedelic experience, but specifically a ketamine journey, is that when your default mode network in your brain starts to quiet, you're going to experience something. Mm -hmm. That might be euphoria. Mm -hmm. You might feel like a connection to the broader universe. You might feel a connection to your the little girl uh, inner child that you were six years old. Mm -hmm. You might feel a connection to your ancestors, relatives, pets, to the world in its, mm -hmm. in its whole. But you'll feel a connection to something. So does the intention setting help you with the connection? Indeed. So okay. I've had situations where I recognize, and I've done a lot of work at this point, I recognize, wow, I'm, I, when somebody crosses me, I'm kind of feeling that I want revenge. Mm. And I started to look into that in one of my ketamine experiences. And I recognized it wasn't through anybody's fault that I was this way. But when I was a child, I used to watch wrestling. I was a kind of an overweight kid. And I, the movies where the hero was the overweight kid was Goodfellas and Casino, where the gangsters were the big guys and the tough guys. And so that's what they did. Right. And so, so I saw that. Yeah. And the proof is one thing, but I also recognized revenge in that experience really wasn't healthy for me. Mm. I didn't get to win no. with the revenge. If anything, and I, anything, you hurt yourself more. I hurt myself more and the person I'm trying to gain revenge on. So mm. I recognized what a fool's errand it was. Mm. And so that's the psycho-spiritual takeaway. Right. You get to learn something about yourself. And then we have, a, we have therapists come in in the room after and kind of crystallize these. Mm -hmm. So, 
hey, Jay, you learned about your revenge. What are you going to do? You know, next time you feel like you've been crossed, are you going to think to yourself, well, I'm going to get them? Yeah. Or are you going to stop and breathe and say, I know where this is coming from? Yeah. And that's where integration is the most important part of the psychedelic experience. That's amazing. Are you not, like, sweating as much as I am? I'm good. You feel amazing? I love this. Good. Doesn't it kind of get you high where your heart's kind of racing? You feel like you're, like, on a light run with me and... You know, when you can kind of get deep with somebody, like, what do you there's feel? A, What's there's, different? Um, a clean, uh, there's a cleanliness to my inner being right now. Right. Like a purity. Yeah. 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 I know. I experience that too. It's funny. I always feel like you release so much oxytocin, especially when you do this with somebody. I mean, yes, we're like half naked, which I'm going to get a little bit more naked right Go for now because I'm really hot. Um, but you are like sweating, making eye contact and having deep conversation and heat which ultimately tells the nervous system to calm down and relax in your safe parasympathetic state. So you can really go into like these safe kind of open conversations with people that you don't always feel. And I, you know, I always felt like alcohol had the same effect with one drink, anything more than one yeah. drink. I just, you know, immediately felt those like depressive properties and didn't feel good on it. But like, I did really feel like that one drink helped me get to this place that I get to experience in the infrared sauna. Right. They don't call it liquid courage for nothing. Yeah. But um, for me, what I found since working with psychedelic medicine, I think it's great for those moments of social anxiety, you know, to soften the edges a little. I think what happens is as you do more and more of these psychedelic experiences, at least in my experience, has been you wake up the next morning. I remember doing um, a plant called Iboga, which is the has ibogaine in it. It's really good for for addiction and stuff like that. Not that I had an addictive pro addiction problem, but I remember waking up, I didn't have a glass of wine for six or eight months, nothing. And then I had one glass and it felt like I was hungover for, like as if I drank 20. That's so interesting. And it just raises the awareness and changes the chemistry in your brain so much yeah. that you just have a different relationship with yeah. alcohol then. But it's, I agree with you on the one drink. It's, it's like the nice way to kind of like reset the body. You know what I mean? Yeah onto like really being able to sense and feel what we put into our body, Indeed. which is such an important thing. And that goes for alcohol, goes for food. It goes for toxic relationships. It goes for like environmental, the list goes on and on. The more you can become aware of what makes you feel good versus what doesn't these quick highs versus these sustaining highs. I feel like that's the most empowering thing for people. And yeah, sometimes you need psychedelics and you know, wellness technologies and therapies to put you in that safe space so that you could just really feel yourself instead of numb, turn off, shut down, block, you know, well, all the things we do That's what Big Pharma has really wanted people to do when they treat all these kind of diagnoses. They yeah. want to numb you, right? Yeah. So whether it's doing an infrared sauna, whether it's doing, uh, becoming a seasoned meditator, whether it's doing psychedelic journeys, they're all about the same thing as far as I'm concerned, which is how do you get back into your body Yeah. and how do you feel? And if you just did that, the ability to process emotions is so much easier. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a book that a shaman wrote. It's called Self-Observation. And the author talks about the idea of like when you're feeling a stressor, mm -hmm. find out where in your body. Mm -hmm. where, where is it communicating? Is yeah. it your chest? Is it your stomach? Yeah. Is it your shoulders? And once you identify that, it's amazing how quickly all these stressors dissipate. Yeah. The Hot Seat is sponsored by Edge Theory Labs, which is a cold plunge company that does portable cold plunging, which I love because we literally pop them up in our spa locations, pop them down, 
You don't need plumbing. It's super easy. Yeah, it's so user-friendly and there's such a wide range of temperatures, which yeah. I think is one of the coolest things about it. It goes as cold as 37 degrees or as hot as 104 if you feel like having a hot tub after your cold plunge. Which we always do. <laughs> so check out the website and use code HIREDOSE15 for 15% off. And they're really cool looking too. You guys gotta check it out at the hot seat. So how have psychedelics really helped men's mental health? You know, men are... Because I feel like we're the, the women are a little bit more in touch with their feelings and their intuition. <laughs> a lot. We kind of have to be when you grow bodies inside of us and we like rely a lot on our like community. We talk a lot with our friends, whereas like men don't do this at all. Like my husband will go and hang out with like a friend of his that he hasn't seen forever and they just talk about like hobbies they're into, things that they like. And I'm like, how's he doing? I heard he was sick. And like his wife, are they still like asking all these like real important questions? And he's like, I don't know. Didn't cover that. I don't know. We didn't talk about that. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. You know, men, uh, and this is a bit of a generalization, but I think it's true because we see it with our kind of member and patient base, is that men have trouble being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of trouble being vulnerable. Now I'm a little... No, I now probably share too much, um, but <laughs> you know, and, and that's because society has instructed men that they've got to be the tough ones. And there's this fake news story going around that in order to be tough, you can't be, you can't share your emotions. But what happens is, and you know this as good as any, if you don't let it out, it festers inside. Mm -hmm. So you're suppressing and repressing these emotions. And there's a lot of metaphysicians, you know, whether it be like, uh, you know, Florence Govell Shin or Neville Goddard, these are kind of mystical writings from the kind of 20s and 30s. They talk about if you continue to repress these thoughts, they will show up as disease mm -hmm. or dis, dis ease. Yeah, especially for men, I feel like as they age, one, naturally, they don't live as long. Yeah, and they're, they're more inclined to substance abuse, too. Yeah. And maybe that was more of our parents' generation or, or grandparents. But I just see how hard it is with my husband, and I'm in, like, health and wellness, to really try to, like, more encourage or inspire him to lead a healthier life. He feels, like, so restricted by it, or I'm not worrying about what's in my diet, or, like, I'm not going to, like, do this type of workout. But he's much more open to receive this information from another man. So if we could just inspire more men to inspire more men, that seems like it would be like such a great place to like focus. And, and, you know, I know people come to your ketamine clinic and you do, you know, amazing therapy and intentions with them, but like, what do they do after that? Like, do you give suggestions on like lifestyle, like join a men's group? Like maybe you want to like think about how much time you're spending on social media or like start your day with a gratitude practice. Like mm -hmm. how do you really like integrate so this in medicine? Really, there's two major components outside of the actual medicine experience. One is called preparation, and the other one's called integration. Preparation is exactly as it sounds, which is how are you going to prepare yourself mentally and physically for your psychedelic experience? And what's involved in preparation is, you know, no consumption of alcohol in the days leading up to it, a healthier diet, uh, free of social media in the mm. news, because that pretty much upsets everybody these days. Um, and to go in with either the intention to work on something specific, like in my case, it was the revenge or I've, I've had intentions to look at some of my anger, or it could be, you know what, I'm going to go into this experience and fully surrender. Mm -hmm. That's the goal here. All mm -hmm. I want to do is let go and the journey will take me mm -hmm. wherever. If there's a door, 
go through it. So preparation is extremely important. When somebody comes in for their experience, we guide them through some breath work and intention setting exercise so that the seed is planted, mm. that by the time that they drop into their psychedelic experience and with IV ketamine, it's about 90 seconds that you're in at peak experience, which is very quick relative to the other psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And then after you come out, it's really about the integration. And part of the integration is what insights did you get today? But also it's about, all right, now that you know what you know, mm -hmm. what are you going to do about yeah. it? Are you going to just shelve that information? Yeah. Or are you going to take that and bring that information into your life and integrate it into mm -hmm. your life? And what are you going to do to kind of keep this calm center, because most people come out of their psychedelic experiences, or many do, with a sense of ease and calm I and felt equanimity. Great for like two weeks afterwards. I yeah. was like on fire. We did like investor meetings, and I thought I was going to be all messed up because I've done ayahuasca before and felt yeah. a little ungrounded for a while yeah. afterwards. But ketamine, I was so grounded, so in my body, so knowing who I was, and I just had this energy about me that attracted all sorts of great people. Well, you know, I believe there's an antenna on top of your head. You can't see it. I've got yeah. one too. Yeah. And it is this quantum energy? No, this okay. is just this is Jay's theorization. Okay. <laughs> but when you put out good energy and you feel good, you like like attracts like. Yeah. It's a simple. It's like as an that. animal. They want like go towards the heat, the safety, the calmness, and and then end up putting out that energy too. It's That's like right. medicine. And, and energy fear medicine. attracts more fear. Yeah. And danger attracts more danger. So when you're putting out that energy, it certainly uh, invites it in. And what you're talking about two weeks post-ketamine journey for you is what we call the afterglow. Mm -hmm. And what we do with our membership post-journey yeah. is really figure out ways they can extend that afterglow. You know, some cases it's a couple of days and then getting it to a week and then two weeks and then three weeks. And people who've really done a lot of this work recognize that it's not the medicine. You are your own medicine. Mm. And so you can always come back to that a non-ordinary state of consciousness with breath, with reminders of music, and perhaps that mm -hmm. you were listening to your journey, in your journey, journaling, meditation. Um, so we have community events where we host holotropic breathwork sessions. Nice. We do sound ceremonies, cacao ceremonies, these other modalities that do not involve the medicine in order to give people more tools to reaccess that afterglow. I love that. Do you also do like follow-up therapy sessions or like <clears throat> phone calls, just check in and Indeed. make sure someone doesn't need extra support or maybe they don't really know how to integrate what they learned and you can kind of give them some more actionable ways to, to utilize what they learn? So when we started in Shama, there was the idea to incorporate both psychedelically informed coaches and psychedelically informed therapists. Nice. You know, we want to work with the therapy community, so we're not looking to take anybody's client away from yeah. them. It's just as good if they come to us, we provide them with the safe space, the intention setting, the integration, and they go back to the therapist and talk about, you know, what they learned. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, there's like the case of like uh, Woody Allen, who was with his therapist for 35 years. That's not therapy anymore. Right. And so we do have therapists on staff who look at this world as a limited course of action, maybe 8, 10, 12 sessions at most, uh, post journeys to really uh, crystallize some of the learnings. I love that. So what's next for Nushama? What's really exciting right now is we just signed an incredible licensing deal with a, a British uh, drug developer called Awaken Life Sciences. And it is a protocol to treat alcohol use disorder. There's like 15,000 alcohol use disorder clinics in the United States. And the efficacy of these inpatient rehab centers, I'm sorry to say, is dreadful. It's mm -hmm. Most of them are single digit efficacy. The very, very, very best results 
have 25%, which still means that three quarters of the people are not getting proper care and are not either re-examining the relationship with alcohol or becoming abstinent. Mm -hmm. So this protocol involves the combination of ketamine with mindfulness-based therapy mm -hmm. that we do to treat alcohol use disorder. And in the clinical trials we found- or, In North America too? or In North, in North America. Um, so the clinical trials that Awaken Life Sciences did showed that after six months of doing this protocol, 86% of the people were abstinent. Wow. And that wasn't even the goal. The goal was really about changing the relationship to alcohol and understanding the underlying issues. So when you start- Which to, means that you helped with so much more than just alcohol abuse. Absolutely, because it all comes from trauma, mm -hmm. right? As we talked about before, it's all about understanding and processing that trauma through your body. You know, it's outpatient, so nobody has to go into some resort. And look, if I stuck you in this sauna for three months where you have no access to alcohol, of course you're not going to drink. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help fix the underlying issue. Yeah. What does fix the underlying issue is understanding why you reach for the glass of wine to begin with. Isn't it kind of crazy with those numbers and results that all therapy and psychiatry is not mandatory to do psychedelics with therapy versus you should have to do that before you get prescribed medicines that ultimately mess with your brain chemistry even more and numb you and, are and numb you and, and cause so many other health problems sexual dysfunction the list goes on you and on you know what and i on. mean like you, you weight should, gain let, let's try to dig deep and work on like the inner traumas rewire the brain start there and if it's the last case then we'll go to you know numbing medication or you know this is a whole yeah i know of worms, i know i but tend to what do I will, that I'm what like, <laughs> but i don't understand why what? they're not just doing this you know so there's two cohorts of people in the psychiatric community there are people who refer to us and they are not about the psychotropic medications like xanax or wellbutrin or uh, zoloft because they know that that numbs people. Mm -hmm. It does help a certain cohort of people for a very limited period of time. So I don't want It's a Band-Aid. Like if someone's yeah. really needing a Band-Aid, give yeah, them a Band-Aid. Band-Aids are okay. But most but people... they're temporary. They're temporary. So, and then there's another cohort of the psychiatric community, unfortunately, that is, is addicted to the system. Mm -hmm. The addictive of, oh, come see me and pay your copay. Come see me and I'll refill your Zoloft prescription. Come see me and I'll... Right, it's a business. It's I a know. business. It's a business. And so... Psychedelics have gained a stigma over the last number of decades and millennia because the fact that they do disintermediate the typical relationship between psychiatrist and patient. Are you worried the government's going to shut down ketamine? No, because if they shut down ketamine, um, no child will be able to get anesthetized. So every when my daughter, who's 12 now, during COVID, she was nine, she broke her wrist and it was not a good break. Not that any break is a good one, but it was happened to be a pretty bad right. one where they had to uh, do some, some surgery. And they anesthetized her with ketamine because children get anesthetized with ketamine. How come it, we don't anymore? We get anesthetized with propofol. Is that way worse? It's just, it, it's not worse or better. It's just more suitable for the adult human body than ketamine for anesthesia. Because but you have to give them a lot. The point is that when people say, is ketamine safe? Is ketamine addictive? Is ketamine dangerous? For 50 years, it's been used every single day right. in an operating theater for pediatrics. Right. Every single day, it's used to treat conditions like fibromyalgia and CRPS and chronic migraines and back pain. And seizures too. And seizures. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's extremely safe. Um, 
That doesn't mean people don't need to be screened. Of course they need to be screened, and we do that very vigorously at Nishama. But this is not about... Uh, I, I don't believe there's any stretch of the imagination that ketamine will be banned or rescheduled. Right now it's a Schedule 3 drug. Um, opioids are Schedule 2, and meth and coke are Schedule 1. I do not foresee a day. I do see a day where there's more regulation, and as far as I'm concerned, bring it on. We want people who are trained, thoughtful, safe to be administering these medications. Mm. So we don't want anybody with a license or any license to be able to administer it. That's amazing. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm a big fan of ketamine. It helped me with my PTSD so much. I think it was like a year and a half ago. Didn't realize that I had PTSD until, until I spoke to a psychotherapist. Was diagnosed with PTSD because of my trauma with childbirth, mm -hmm. which led to me having a seizure a year later, and then my son having a seizure six months later. So I had this trauma around dying. I thought I was going to die even when I went to bed. I thought someone was going to come through the window and steal my children. Babysitter was going to throw them off the balcony. Couldn't stop these crazy looping thoughts. And just thought that I had to kind of like suffer through it. Didn't really think that there was a solution. And then through Biohackers, a show that we film about female biohacking, I did ketamine two sessions in one week and relived the trauma of the childbirth and the seizures, realized that they were actually the same because I just like shook like a leaf, resetting my nervous system, kind of like an animal does when they experience trauma. Yeah. And then just realized that I had all the control to just calm myself down, use my breath, let it go, realized this was an experience that happened to me, this wasn't me, and that I feel safe and step away from fear and go into like safety, which safety was a big concern for me. I now, to this day, feel like 90% better where I don't have these looping thoughts. And when I start to see one happen, I immediately like let it go and like go back to enjoying myself. It was so profound and by far one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. I'm so happy to hear that. And it just goes to show you the, the healing power of these molecules. And, and for you specifically, um, you know, a great mantra probably for you is I am safety. Yeah. I am safety for myself. I am safety for my husband. I am safety for my community. I am safety for my, my company. And that's the integration from the learnings. Yeah. I love that. Did an hour go by already? Yeah. I, I, I actually put up the sauna twice. So I'm like, I have no more water left in my body. Good. I don't know about you, but I, I feel, feel completely great. cleansed and detoxed. Totally. I'm not sure if it was the conversation of the sauna or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's a good thing, right? It should be all of, all of the above. Totally.